Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Why It Matters. For March 2021, we are joined here today, as always, Tim and myself. Say hi, Gracie. You missed the, you totally picked it up. Missed, never mind. You missed totally it. Totally missed. It, George Burns. Yes. It's like, say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. No idea. You I never, don't know any of what George we're and Gracie about. show. Never mind. I no. will. Uh-uh. Don't is edit in, this out. A black and white show? Like, yes. It's like, a black and white is, show. It's yeah, old. It's I the George and Gracie show. I have no idea um, who that is. Wow. I'm going to Google it in the background. Please, yeah, George Burns, Gracie. It was always like, say goodnight, Gracie. And she would say, goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. Anyhow. Right? Yes. Right. Do it Any- one more time and I'll, I'll totally nail it. No, it's too late. This is gold. Is it it's in the yeah. recording and I right. look like a heel. Anyhow, <laughs> we, <laughs> Tim and I are thrilled uh, to be joined today by... Amy Sample Ward, who is someone we have both had, I would honestly say the deep privilege of association with for many, many years. Amy was a guest on our old podcast, Cloud TNT. Um, Tim and I are unbelievable admirers of the work that N10 does. And I don't know, Tim, is there any other praise you want to heap on Amy before we turn it over to her? I had one of the most amazing, speediest in town, in Portland driving experiences one time with, so in the car, this is crazy. I'm sorry. I just have to say it was, I think Judy Sohn, you, me, and Jamie driving, right. With Amy driving in a small car and just like Amy drives great. I'm very comfortable with it because it's fast. Like I drive. And it was, it was fun. And we were skipping another conference together, which made it even better because that's my favorite thing to do is to skip conferences. So that was a really great experience. Uh, I know that you've had much more impactful work, but that was a really great memory. So there we go. Didn't we get Thai food? We did. We did get Thai food. We yes. did get Thai food. At a really great restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Come Thank back you, to Portland. Amy. I'll drive you to I, Thai I, food anytime. I remember Not travel. Not pandemic, but you know, outside yeah, right. of that. Af- afterwards, afterwards. Yeah, I definitely remember travel. Amy, please shut us up and introduce yes, yourself. I was just going to interrupt. I was like, I'm just going to move this into like some sort of format yes, of thank you. podcast interview here. Okay, so thank you for having me. Thank you for heaps of praise. I feel uh, unworthy and also accept it as part of my ongoing work to accept how worthy all of us are. Uh, I am Amy Sample Ward. Hello. Uh, We don't know each other. I'm happy to drive you around in Portland and take you to Thai food too. Um, I am the CEO at N10. I use she and they. I am based in beautiful Multnomah Clackamas land where today it is just the way I like it, like tumultuous outside. Uh, it feels good. It feels, you know, nature and weather are happening. It feels great. Um, and I'm excited for this conversation because um, a big practice of mine that I consider my professional development, uh, instead of, you know, doing more formal things like 
courses or professional certificates, which obviously I advocate for because N10 provides them, um, is I have committed that at least once a week for, I mean, a couple of years now, um, my goal is to have an agendaless call with a community member. And I just like learn about what they're working on. We get to share like whatever is just you know, top of mind, top of heart in the moment with this other person. And I really think that being in relationship is the way we do this work well, and that we are accountable to each other as like actual people, not like government white dominant systems that have said certain people talk to each other or something. And so those conversations, I mean, some of those have turned into like, folks I text every week and are close friends now. Um, some of those folks have gotten integrated into N10 programs. Some of those folks like we talked to once and that's totally fine. But um, I think the the opportunity to have an agendaless conversation with people that you trust and respect and enjoy is a gift that we kind of generate for ourselves. And so this one happens to be recorded, which I'm going to try and uh, manage what I say and perhaps the vast amount of swearing, but otherwise, you know, let's, let's do it. Thank you. Um, Amy, I think where I want to start is, is, so this is one recording that uh, it's actually kind of awesome because we're doing a few with Amy this month for a few different purposes. And something you said in the prep for a different uh, session that we're all doing really touched my heart deeply. Uh, and I will quote the, the quote as I wrote it down, but like, I really wanted to invite you to elaborate on that. Um, okay. because the quote that Amy gave me was, how do we have a conversation about tech strategy in the first place when everything is awful right now? And I, I, we were just doing workshop prep and, and my heart went right to my throat. And I was like, that's it. I have been personally trying to pretend for the better part of a year that everything's under control and the situation's normal and it hasn't been. And it, and it's like, it gave me a minute to realize that like pretending otherwise is not only tone deaf, but it's also like stressful. And maybe that's part of all the stress we're experiencing. So I wanted to invite you to, to open with that because I think that yeah. was a really clear and, and beautiful intention. Yeah. Thanks for that. I think, you know, um, I think a piece of this conversation that has been challenging, but as a white person, I am, I am here to take on is the number of conversations over the last 11 months that have started with an acknowledgement that the compounding or, or, you know, onion layers of oppression that it seems a lot of institutions and a lot of those institutions leaders are now aware of have been fully clear to a whole lot of people for a whole long time. And I think the, the reality that so many folks like didn't know that there was systemic racism baked into our healthcare systems until there was a global pandemic. And even then like thought maybe it wasn't real still is what makes it feel almost harder for all of these same communities to say, 
yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem we felt for a long time. And now amidst a global pandemic, amidst, you know, real righteous uprisings all around the world, not just in the US against police brutality, against systemic racism, like all of these things and you're still a meh? You're still like a statement that it's okay, you know? Like, it, I think it makes it so much harder when it isn't even just that they're happening, it's that despite the pinnacle it feels of these things happening at the same time, there's still little acknowledgement of it. Um, and certainly that'll, I'm sure, come up in our conversations today, but um, just a, a real-time reflection that I, I have been feeling. I mean, earlier this week, I don't know what day, because what is time? And, you know, it just wasn't today. But sometime earlier this week, I posted in, like, the N10 staff Slack about, you know, I just so badly wish that we were in a room and, like, not working on anything, just like being 14 people in a room, eating snacks and like shooting the shit together, you know? And that I wanted it so badly. I like started crying, typing the words into Slack and was like, well, looks like shit is hard and I need to stop working right now, you know? And just like wrote all of that and asked, you know, of course, all this time and, and even before this time, we've worked so hard at N10 to make sure our culture is like, we take care of each other and we take care of ourselves. That does not mean you work all hours. That also means like, I don't know what you define as work. Taking care of yourself is work. Like hmm. going and picking up medicine for another staff person and dropping it off at their house because you have a car and they don't have a car and there's a global pandemic happening. Like that's work. That's work time. Like, I don't know how we get through this world if we are not taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other and acknowledging that like all these other structures that try and define what resource is or what work is or what is what we should be doing, like that is fucking white supremacy at work and just like move on, you know, get out of that mindset because otherwise like how many things can we create that no one can use because we're all having a hard time. You know? Yeah. And it's it's funny because I'm a geek at heart. Um, I'm actually a geek and a nerd and all of these things. And that part of me that is most energized by creation, mm -hmm. you know, of whatever. And I'm going to, I always acknowledge now, like not at all points in my career has that creation energy always been directed at things that are like explicitly positive or amazing. There's been a lot of moments in my career where I'm just like, no, nope, this is fueled by pure rage and we're going forward with it. Um, but, you know, like that person in me who's enamored by creation, what I love about what you said is it's an invitation for everyone like me to examine the power and privilege that allows us to do that creation in the first place and how it's landing in the greater world. And I think that's been the gift in some ways of the past year, since we're coming up on a year now, uh, has been to just say like, how is it that we really show up? So right. thank you. Right, yeah. I also wanna say on that, um, that I've been thinking and Tracy and I, talked about this 
last week, I think, you said about time, it's so true. It was either yesterday or last May, like somewhere in there. Um, but I, I remember we were talking about the need right now, especially, I'll just say for white men, especially to just turn around and actually say like, I'm sorry, this is the moment for confession to actually just start happening. Like this is us, this is what happened, we see it. And just naming truth as reality of truth instead of being surprised by it. Um, like we, it, to the degree that we were surprised, it's time to move past that and actually say, yeah, you know, and, and this is what's next. Um, and I feel that personally um, in really powerful ways that I don't always know what to do with. What I do feel like has been important is to know we got to start by saying like this is a problem and we are we we are the problem it's not other people we only put more posts out there about other people like we just need to start doing our own business um so thanks for thank you for raising that and just continuing to remind like this is a hard moment and i heard an analogy where we're all like for the pandemic we're all in a storm but some of us are in yachts and some of us are in lifeboat lifeboats and some don't even have lifeboats. Um, mm -hmm. And as one of those who's in a yacht, um, I find that a very horrifying thought and want to escape it. And this is the moment to just not escape it. Like that's the problem is turning away. Um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for raising it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I wanna softball a question to you, which I think will precipitate a bunch of other discussions. Um, but it's an easy one, I think. Uh, I was a softball pitcher. Were you? I was. Okay, so I'm going to dial back that metaphor. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to easily hand a question to you because uh, I know softball pitchers are actually pretty badass in this world, uh, and I couldn't hit a softball to save my life. Uh, my wife Big would tell ones, you, you know? yeah. They're bigger than baseballs. <laughs> My wife would tell you the only place where I actually experience elegance and grace is on skis and everywhere else. I'm always just like falling into things all over the house. <laughs> but I want to ask you, you know, with regard to the past year, this was the start of, you know, my inquiry on, on this conversation. And that is big tech companies in general, which is something that N10 has a lot of relationships with have had to respond to two things, the global pandemic and you know, the, the literal realignment towards racial justice that has taken place and continues to take place in our world. Letter grading those responses. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's How great. have, yeah. I mean, I wrote a piece That's about a soft it. pitch. What? <laughs> I, I wrote a piece about it and I was like, I'm so glad that you're all standing up, but it's not what happens when you're standing up. It's what happens when you sit back down that matters. But like letter grading those responses, like how, how has that landed with you and your point of view at N10? Uh, you know, I mean, I think that the, I think while I don't believe in a letter grade system, and don't think- It's very that, Montessori of you. Don't think that the way that we are uh, focused on reinforcing like white dominant systems of productivity and uh, uh, 
predetermined hierarchy of who is good and bad uh, is working for humans. So I'll like say that and opt out. Um, that's a different podcast for a different sector. Um, but an awesome one. But, yeah, I kind of want to be there for that. <laughs> I think that the, I would have a higher, I have, I have a little bit more positive feelings towards the responses that are associated with the pandemic than about any level of racial equity uh, response. And that's really because underneath it all, there's a capitalist mechanism at our advantage on the pandemic side where like tech companies see that they can get more customers by getting more of their products into nonprofits who had to pivot into the cloud. And, and that same capitalist angle is inherently at odds with doing real racial equity work, right? So I think that is my answer. Like there's, I think the biggest um, example I go back to is when, you know, a year ago, like everything happened and everyone was like at home and you know, I, I saw some meme the other day where someone said, I'm sorry, I can't credit them. It was just like an Instagram story meme of something. Um, but someone said, like tweeted, uh, what's everybody wearing to the anniversary of two weeks to flatten the curve asking for a friend? And I was like, oh my God, remember when we all thought we would go home for two weeks and then the, a global pandemic would be over? So you know, remember that time a year ago and tech companies like, oh, we're going to make our, whatever the platform is, whatever the product is, you know, available to nonprofits for free, fine Mm. print until September. Right. And there were so many organizations who were like scrambling and doing, doing the thing that we know not only nonprofits, every single person, every single kind of organization was doing back in March and April, which was like, just grab things up that are free and try and keep going. There was no strategy. There was no, hey, what makes sense for the communities we work with? What kind of access do they have? Like there was none of that level of of community-based strategy. Um, And then a couple months in, they were like, hey, these tools aren't really working. And also, do we have to start paying for them? It's like, that's, that's capitalism, (laughs) you know, that was an opportunity for a whole bunch of new customers and either they bend and say, we'll keep doing this for free for nonprofits or whatever their, their mechanism would be for their like charity, um, or got to do some hard shifts and have a real strategic direction for your technology here, you know? on the racial equity side, oh my gosh, like that needs, I need yeah. like a, I need a lot of bubble wrap around how to talk about that. <laughs> like there's just no, you know, I, I think that no one, there haven't been any of those blog posts or conference panels of, you know, this isn't only a statement when it's about the pandemic, but those blog posts and those conference panels of like, you have to do more than make a statement about racial justice 
to be doing something. You know, I don't, I don't see, I don't see shifts that are moving actual power, actual responsibility, real accountability into the hands of, or in relationship with those same communities. And until that happens, it doesn't really matter what we say. It doesn't matter that you made some policy that everybody gets certain benefit. Like those things should have already happened. So they don't count as, as credit now. Like you're just getting to neutral. You're not even getting to a place of, of working towards real equity here. You know, like those, those components aren't on the list that anyone's asking for demands because like as a legitimate company, you should have already been doing that work, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I, my response to, you know, my, my personal observation, should I say, in response to a lot of the racial justice things were like, how is it you managed to corrupt this into something you can market? Like, I was like, oh my God, you, you figured out how to turn this into a marketing opportunity. And I was like, oh, you know, that's where I, you know, saw the abundant levers of capitalism. What's weird is I had a different point of view on the COVID response stuff. And I think maybe it was just by virtue of the people I was hanging out at that moment, because a lot of people were like, oh crap, this is the moment where we're all unilaterally screwed. And unless we do something that serves all of us, you know, none of us are moving forward. Like it, that to me was like more of a, like, I saw developers doing like work for the sake of work and just like mm -hmm. getting things out. But yeah, it's funny, like going on a year later after we were all hanging out for two weeks um, and wondering where all the toilet paper went for that matter, you know, like, it is funny a year later that so much of what happened with the pandemic is rooted in human behavior and so much of that behavior still rests in these systemic inequities that we're profoundly uncomfortable to unpick. Totally. I mean, even just, we were one of those houses that did not have any toilet paper. We had, we were, I was searching Twitter for people posting like what store maybe had some, we had to, you know, lean on our community, get some, get some roles from friends. Um, but even that it's like, I think everybody in, in some way has seen or shared the jokes about everybody running out of toilet paper. And like, that's because it, that was the first time for so many people that there had been the idea of panic. And like the thing that you needed to be sure you had was like, a luxury item in that way. You know, it wasn't like dried rice and dried beans, which we have never run out of. Um, toilet paper we did, but <laughs> you know, it's like there wasn't a, there wasn't even in that moment an alignment of what the impact was about to be for different communities, you know? And I think that's been the hardest piece because at the end of the day, like, Capitalism and white supremacy are like BFF forever, you know, and trying to talk about one without talking about the other isn't going to go very far. You're going to hit a wall um, unless they're, unless you're acknowledging both. And I think, again, that's part of why the responses 
especially from tech companies or whoever have been so, so, so limited in, in how they feel outside of the tech company, you know, to the sector or to communities, because there is no acknowledgement that capitalism is still going to fuel them and, and keep them moving forward. Even tech companies whose like responses to how they're going to somehow fix racial injustice is getting their products out to those communities. Like, no, oh my, no, that's not, please. We are not in this position because there was too few people using your website or database or like, that, that is not what got us here. Uh, but the fact that you think it is, is maybe the thing that needs some more consideration, you know? Did you, did you see a, like, was the, the spectrum of response on that, was there a spectrum or was it all like, even the variants on responses were so minor that it's basically the same response? Well, I mean, I think there may be two categories. Like, I feel like I saw a number of responses that were very um, internal facing, like, we're making this statement and letting you know that like inside at our company, we do X, Y, and Z, or we, we believe in X, Y, and Z, that kind of thing. Um, and then there was the category that were like, we get this and we see it and here's how we're helping by giving out our product or, or something, you know? And it's, I almost would prefer that you don't even do the like, here's what we're doing about it. If what you're doing about it is just getting more customers, you know, if, if you're just going to do the first one, at least you're in totally investing in a thing you can control, which is your organization, you know? Right. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think I would say those were the two categories I really saw. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, was, I... go ahead, Tim. Go for it. Oh, I was going to say I was the, the 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 one response that was profoundly disappointing to me was watching several companies that I respected deeply create whole new products to sell <laughs> for the sake of solving a problem um, that like, in fact, you know, and, and where I want to pivot this to, Amy, is, is, is another quote that, you know, has been on my mind. Uh, since we were just talking about it in the, in the prep for this recording. And that is, you know, so we've created whole new products, we've created whole new responses, and we've created whole new marketing campaigns for the sake of solving problems that we didn't realize were problems literally a year ago by virtue of our own blindness and participation in the system that created the problems in the first place. Now, caught in the middle of all of this are nonprofits, and, and the impact economy globally, right? And that impact economy has been on the front lines of trying to pivot solution for its communities, address these inequities, and at the same time is now getting twice the inundation of technology, leading me to the other brilliant Amy quote that I wrote down uh, to the section. And that is, why do we belittle the one section of our world that is holding our communities together at this moment? And, and why I want to pick at that is because this gets at the root of how nonprofits adopt and get into technology in the first place. Thanks for all of that. I think, um, you know, there's this, this uh, 
conversation we were having earlier that I kind of want to invoke a little here. And that is the idea that we, we have, I mean, maybe not the three of us um, in, in this conversation or other, not every single individual person, but we as the collective have just accepted that, you know, to work in a nonprofit is to like do lesser work than working in a for-profit and that the nonprofit sector is permanently like behind or trying to catch up or like doesn't know how to be as savvy as all those tech companies or just, you know, for-profit industry in, in general. And there's something about accepting that trope that means we can't even start the conversation at a place to be most constructive and strategic because we're going to spend half of our conversation trying to prove that we are as an organization not in that trope like everybody else so that we can then have some other conversation right and it's just not productive but I don't know that nonprofits are necessarily the main perpetrators of that of that myth you know, I see in so many technology company and philanthropy articles or, or white papers or statements, you know, it's, it's, oh, well, for-profits are here and nonprofits are like lagging behind. And I don't know that, I mean, I would love to see like truly objectively, who are the organizations that are doing great across the things that matter across equity across real impact and okay like if you can tell me like the top 100 are all for-profit companies I will then finally believe you but I don't know that that would really be the case and we have to let go of that idea and then that existed even before the pandemic right like we were already having all of those articles of nonprofits lag behind in innovation like what even is innovation like, no, <laughs> that's not real. And then the pandemic happened. And so, so many companies had never had a policy where their staff got to work from home. A bunch of nonprofits did. A bunch of nonprofits already knew they could work from home. You know, like the fact that it had to be a news article that tech companies were like, they've sent a thousand employees home. Okay. Like literally everyone did. We're in a pandemic. We have stay home orders. Like, I don't know why this is newsworthy, you know? So, the pandemic happened, everybody shifted, not just nonprofits, everybody struggled, not just nonprofits. Like we are all humans in all of those organizations. And I think there's this piece that enters into the, the way technology companies responded back to our, kind of what we were talking about before of, oh, we need to like pity these lowly nonprofits, right? We need to provide some charity, which is itself like this white savior complex of we've created something that we know can somehow uplift and save these 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 people working in a nonprofit but back to our other piece that's capitalism that is them like getting some customers in that that need a product and none of that was because of who those organizations necessarily served or who worked in those organizations um who led those organizations and that is a huge missing piece of this right if if nonprofits are meant to be able to really call tech companies to task and, and into accountability, that is calling them to spend so much more of their time 
focused on the folks who are providing them technology than the folks who they are serving. And I would never ask them to do that. Well, I think there's lots of value in the, in the nonprofit sector, like collectively organizing and getting tech companies to, to answer to us. I don't think that individual staff in those organizations should have to spend their time doing that because they are the ones providing so much resource in so many ways to communities right now experiencing so much need. And why would they then need to shift where they spend their time to do the work that those tech companies should already be invested in doing? Can you connect that to something that N10 put out this past year? (laughs) uh, The equity guide for nonprofit technology. Um, That was a really amazing project. And I want to hear more about that as that kind of demand. Yeah, and I'll share a little bit of the history that I don't know that we talk about too much, but um, a number of years ago, I think seven years ago now, which seems like, I guess, seven lifetimes, um, the N10 staff and board and community committees were talking about like, what's, what are needed resources in the sector and you know, a big area of focus for across all those board staff and community was something to orient and organize around that gets at, you know, what Intense mission is, which is the racially equitable use of technology. And how do we help folks kind of talk about the same things when, when, when we say equity in technology? And so that took many shapes over, over the years. And in 2019, we were at the place where we decided to really build like a dedicated resource, not just starting conversations or having that flow into other programs. And we put together a really cool and diverse working group. Tracy was a part of it. And um, we organized these community members and had super great conversations and you know, over the course of a year got to a full document that was very long and very rich and it's totally free. It's on the website Um, and the equity guide covers three different categories of technology. So the way a nonprofit uses technology, of course, relevant to nonprofits, but we always try and remind foundations, they are nonprofits too, and they need to be Mm -hmm. um, considering of, of how they're using technology internally. How we fund technology, which means both like go fund a new technology project, as well as like, how are we budgeting internally for the technology we need? And then uh, how we create technology. So a nonprofit could be in all those categories. A foundation could be in all those categories. Um, But tech companies are also creating technology for this sector. And a big piece of um, that section of the equity guide is what it looks like to truly have nonprofits in your process and centered in the products you're creating for them. Um, you know, creating something that had never had the intention of being used for nonprofits that's now free to nonprofits. I mean, that exists. I'm glad that the resource is shared, I guess, but we can't expect that nonprofits are able to successfully meet our mission with a, with a product that calls our community members, customers, right? That is shifting the relationship that we inherently have put against our mission every time we are putting data in that system, right? And so 
those structures need to be examined and re-centered on nonprofit experience and not just, uh, you know, convenient nomenclature. I mean, I don't know, we could go there, but tell me if you don't want this or like edit it before you post this. I but, want all um, of this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> was, um, this is what know, I, I want. Was just, right I was just talking yesterday to some folks that I'm, I'm in a group with at GitHub who I'm so excited for them and really proud to like shout their their investment um, from from the rooftop of my bedroom table. Uh, but they, you know, have now pushed live that they have renamed because of the nomenclature of oppression that the technology sector is built on and constantly reinforces. They've renamed that there are no master branches. There are main branches and that we can get rid of the kind of language that reinforces white dominance. And that's been pushed, it's live. Um, all of GitHub, all of the internet that is powered through GitHub, that has been shifted. And that's awesome, I'm so excited. And like, that was the right thing to do. <laughs> it shouldn't have been there to begin with. Folks should do some examination of how it was created that way, um, but at least it's been shifted. And what I was talking to them about was the vast number of white angry responses that that shouldn't have happened that they shouldn't have made that shift that it doesn't matter that that is that is going to be a problem to them to i don't even know what like i don't i, I don't even know how to <laughs> imagine what the criticisms are but there were a lot of them and i'm super glad that so much of it was shut down and GitHub was able to just say no, you know, to that kind of pushback. But the idea that there would be that much pushback is again, like a reflection of what, what we're dealing with when we talk about changing who technology is for, who it is being built for, who is doing the building and, and what it, what the impact of that is. And it isn't just having folks on the team. It is, shifting and accounting for the way it's already been built, the impacts it has already made, um, and the way it reinforces so many of these other systems. The power, one of the powers of technology is the way that it introduces words that create systems of meaning, right? So mm -hmm. um, I talked at the MA conference uh, a couple of years ago about um, implicit biases in systems. So that's a good example of one. Another like gender obviously is uh, you know, an obvious one, household leader or household, primary household leader, like, you know, like lot, lots of this. Um, and it, I, I think it is easy to forget if you don't see all of the comments that come back in. So like when you were telling that story, I'm like, that seems like a no brainer. Right. And I, and I'll admit, I'm surprised. <laughs> I just continue to be surprised that people would push back on that because I'm, I, I'm searching for the cost here. Like, okay, like what is the cost to you of this? And because there isn't actually one, it means loss of power. Like that, totally. that, that's, the, that's the cost, right? Um, totally. I and, had a great conversation, yeah. you know, like I was saying before, I love connecting with community members for, for conversations. I talked to um, this person who is so awesome. If you're listening to this, you should follow them if you like fundraising um, or, or not. But Clay Buck, um, we were chatting yesterday and, you know, Clay was talking about in the, in the fundraising world, organizations that 
he works with that say like, we're not going to put an MX as a, as a option. And it's like, okay, <laughs> are you fundraising from any person exactly. at all? Or are you funding from very specific person people? Also like, why does that even matter? Why do you even need to have a, a Mr. or a Ms. or a mix or anything? Like, why do you even need that? And why is that the place we're having this conversation? Like, is it because your database was set up to require that? And the idea of trying to rework against a system that wasn't made intentionally for your community, it feels beyond because that's a technology issue. That's not a, a data issue or a community issue. And like unraveling all those pieces somehow becomes so much harder than it should be if a tool had been made for this community originally, you know? You know, it, it's funny. It reminds me of something that we went through this past year in the, what I call, oh, little town of Livermore out here in California. Um, so uh, we are, one of our side things that we've done is we co-founded Livermore Pride, and there's a lot of amazing folks engaged with that. But by virtue of that, we've gotten to just be acquainted with folks on the city council and, and one of our uh, volunteers now board members is she ran for city council and she won in the fall. It was awesome. Um, but the, one of the other city council members here, she's a like a PhD sociologist. Hmm. And we got in a talk about like, well, all we really want to do is fly the pride flag at city hall or somewhere. Right. And, you know, what's funny about our town is the city hall is actually not at the center of town. It's down the road and it has its own little flag posts. And that's very lovely. But the target flag that we were originally thinking of was the one that's like literally in the center of our town that you can see from a mile away because it's like one of those like America flags. Right. And, you know, we got in this whole discussion about symbology and sacred Americana and, and what does it mean when people feel like their symbols are threatened and, you know, folks weren't threatened by a pride flag at town hall, but they certainly were on that giant, like America flagpole. Right. So the town had to write its whole flag ordinance around all of these things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, okay, look, we got a pride flag up. That was cool. Right. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're pulling on my memory of that conversation because of the fact that technology also creates symbols, whether or not it does so intentionally. And then to unpick it once it becomes meaningful to people is just a mess. Well, and it has the power to reinforce those symbols Yep. in like, you know, the power of, you know, software as a service is that it's always working for you, generating revenue in the background, right? So, um, and that's also what it's doing with those symbols, right? So it's always in the background, um, strengthening and reinforcing those symbols, unless you make a move on, on that. Um, to your point, Amy, about the, about, um, technology as a as a place I do not know what happened I just totally lost my question let's okay. edit that out yeah. um oh shoot oh yeah I don't know what it is I'll have to remember it I bet it was Jim 
gem. Oh, a gem. Yes, I'm sure it was. Well, I do. Okay, so one. I was like the band gem from the cartoon. <laughs> when you and I get a chance, like I would love to have coffee with you, just um, and talk about the absence of price in nonprofits. So I, I know like that'll introduce capitalism and we can have that whole conversation as well. Um, but I, I just want to put that out there while we're doing this, you know, well, I think, that we're gonna get I, you out. know, I think what's, what's um, interesting is there's to be anti-capitalist does not mean I or, or other folks entering a conversation um, to take an anti-capitalist view would say, and so nothing has value, you can't pay for things, there's no longer any money exchanged or other good exchange. That you don't have to like do away with the idea of value to be anti-capitalist, right? It just means that the value isn't how many of this can I sell at maximum or how much money can I extract at maximum? Yeah. It is about being in relationship right? All of this is about being in relationship and right relationship with each other. And so we even talk about this in the equity guide, like you can charge for your platform, build it with nonprofits at the center, include staff at your tech company who have previously worked in nonprofits, right? Like embed the purpose and the end user of this sector in your, in your product development, and then price it appropriately. Nonprofits will pay for technology. I mean, there are, it is very rare, even in N10's world of, you know, talking to 50,000 plus that folks have spent zero actual dollars on their technology. No, organizations of any type, what any IRS tax status will pay for technology, but we don't think that the pricing has been set equitably and in a real relationship with nonprofits, right? So it's either like, give it away for free and write it off or it's over here and we're making a ton of money extracting from the sector, right? There has to be an in-between that says some folks shouldn't have to pay because they're a mutual aid group that is providing great service but doesn't have a C3 or something, right? Up to, you're an enterprise level international organization, yeah, pay for these tools, yep. right? And like, what's the scale in between those those places? I think is um, the, the pricing that we're trying to advocate for in the equity guide and that we don't see a lot of uh, widespread adoption of in, in the tech sector. Yeah, I, I would say on that, part of what I mean by price is that there is no price set for services mm. that nonprofits provide. And the absence of a metric there throws off all of the conventional capitalist markers. And you have people on your boards that have done well with an opposite model, you know, um, of, okay, do as little as you can for as much as possible. Right. And impact is the exact opposite, you know, do as much as you can for as little as possible. And the underlying economics of that difference can't be represented anywhere because there isn't price. Right. And so it puts nonprofits in a disadvantaged conversation position every time there's a conversation around that, because Absolutely. there isn't you know, there's a price for every other thing out there, but nonprofits and good luck if you ever tried to say like our services are like, you know, that that goes bad fast and for right. good reason, actually. But um, right. so I, I do, I think that that's, I'm glad to hear you say like, that is the pricing model. Uh, you know, I remember talking with Salesforce about the 10 free licenses 
And I and I'm like, that's a that right that that creates a problem in the market instead of it being sliding scale. You know, you you so um, the one other thing I would love to get your thoughts on related to symbology is around the CDM. And I want to talk about it as symbology because as Tracy and I have thought about C CDM and others that we've been working with, one of the ways Which we view it for the is- common data model. Yes, thank you. Just Most explicitly yes. for the nonprofit common data model. There are others, but model. when we say CDM, it's a shortcut for the nonprofit CDM right. common data model. And one of what, what has us energized about this is looking at 2030 and the SDG goals that are out there, which have largely been marketing and seeing the incredible power of those as a, here's 17 things we don't have to argue about. We can just say like somebody upstairs set them for us. Let's just, let's go for those. Um, and the problem with a lot of those is there's no real connection to data around impact that's being generated by that. Um, and so when we're looking at the nonprofit CDM, part of what we're looking at is those as symbols. And then part of it is just cost reduction. Um, so very curious if you have thoughts on that, what you've, what you are thinking about it, et cetera. I do have thoughts about it. I have complicated kind of interwoven thoughts about data because um, I will get to the CDM, but just to name, I think some of these complications as how they feel in the lived experience inside of a nonprofit is that um, when philanthropy talks to us about common data models, what philanthropy means is that my youth focused organization needs to identify or needs to define high school graduation rate the same as three other organizations that they also grant yep. to that yep. is not what my data has meant and what it historically has not meant and is hopefully maybe set as a definition within the mission that we have um, it is not the same mission as other organizations and so there's um heavy and rightful resistance to the request from philanthropy for a common data model, because it means everyone should organize under that foundation's definitions. And then somehow by doing that, we would share our data with them and like they would get to claim some story of impact that is not theirs. Like they should have put the money in. I, I don't, yes, just give us the money. Don't claim the impact, right? And so there's that, view and perception and real experience that happens foundations are trying to you know set the definition of of those areas of work and then on this other angle of like the spider web right is the very practical need that organizations have who do not have the same mission but have community members they are serving with some pieces of services that are only part of the blanket of services that that person is experiencing, right? Or benefiting from. And so how can, as a practitioner that provides one piece of services to the community, best interact with people who are serving, you know, providing the other parts of those services? Um, you know, someone who's uh, houseless in Portland right now, is probably potentially able to access services from five, six plus organizations, but those organizations don't have effective ways to know or support 
the the user path, right? Um, to use a technology term, and so it doesn't feel good. It's a it's a broken experience for those folks, right? Um, so then there's that piece, um, and then there's another web, right? Which is how many organizations, even within their own organization, from program to program, they are using different tools. They have different data silos. They don't even know within the organization how best to communicate with a single constituent, right? So there's like so many, like, and those are just three of them. I'm not trying to say like that's the exhaustive list, but I think within an organization, when we open up, oh, let's talk about a common data model, those are the things top of mind that organizations are like, I don't even want to have this conversation, right? Like I'm already arming myself because this is not going to serve me. This is going to be a ton of work. This is not enabling the impact I'm trying to have. Um, so all of that like acknowledgement first, I am, I am excited for a few things about the nonprofit um, common data model. The first thing is that it can, I mean, be adopted by anyone. This isn't, doesn't have to be about any single product, um, which is important to me that this isn't product specific. And that in so doing, this is really about mapping database fields. This is not about defining what those database fields are, right? And I think that that's the piece that is, um, unlike an effectiveness enablement piece that gets rid of the kind of conversation about common data models that philanthropy has has fueled is this is not about Tim Tim's organization defines high school graduation rate differently than mine. This is like I've got a program over here <laughs> and all of this data and I need it out of that system and I need it in this system and I need to like match it up to email address and match it up to name and match it, you know, and that's the piece that that organizations do really need. And we are all the time trying to move data from one system to another, whether it's because one program, you know, is using Eventbrite for all their training listings and they need to port it over to the database or my organization sharing it with Tim's, right? Um, we're not trying to well, I don't need to say we, I'm not part of the common data model, I didn't create it, but the, the benefit I think that is really there um, is that it is allowing those portability of data, which again is even in the equity guide. Like that's something nonprofits need to be able to own and move anytime they want without bringing in these oh, oh, overlord defined uh, components of, of what your impact should be or what that data means. It's just allowing you to move the data, right? Yeah, so, it sounds like you're talking about, and it's really helpful because I don't think anybody has raised this until now. You're talking about benchmarking standards. Right. You know, hmm. um, which is in my mind, such a completely different, I mean, I can absolutely see how they're related, but um, yeah, and and that is absolutely right. And you know, um, Vule has a scathing article on you know on those standards that is really hard to argue with. Even though I'm an economist and a measure that really likes data, I still think that is absolutely right. Right now, when we look at a project, we're estimating forty percent of the budget will be data data moving, right? Like migration cleansing, scrubbing, all of that. Um, 
Yeah, I think you're exactly spot on. We want to see that over time get to more like 10%. And you, you can't do that unless you're creating that portability like you're talking about. Right. Um, but that's a really helpful a, a distinction. A big piece of this complicated conversation around data, and I'll go find Vu's um, blog post. Um, I think a big piece of this complicated data conversation is that there is not a sufficiently uh, prominent conversation in the sector as a whole about what that data is, whose data it is, where did it come from? What is the data being used for? Before we talk about portability between systems, like what are you putting in there? Is it extractive? Do people even know you have that data on them? Do they know they could take it away? Like there's just so many human pieces of the conversation that get left out because data becomes data and data becomes a number, data becomes a thing that an organization somehow owns, um, or we could talk about tech companies, profitability. <laughs> um, and, and that's even before we get to talk about impact that we're somehow proving because of data in the database. Um, that gets way before we start talking about self-determination. I mean, even the, the UN SDGs, like, Where's the self-determination in those? Where is the community-based goal setting around what resources they need and want versus some sort of like global universal standard, right? So there's, there's a lot that has to be reckoned with in a conversation about data. So I don't wanna pretend that the nonprofit common data model is like here to, here to save us from that reckoning because it's not at all. But while we're doing that reckoning, it could be a tool to move some data between systems. <laughs> you know? Well, and the other thing I want to say is that the the nonprofit CDM community is actually the, to me, the more important piece of it, which is the conversation and a space to have that conversation that is a neutral space hosted mostly by practitioners of technology um, who do understand, you know, how that's helpful and the more voices that bring more of those questions to that community, the better. Yeah. So that we actually are yeah. dealing with those questions at the same time. Yeah. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. We are we are right at time on this recording, but I wanted to, in addition to saying thank you for, I, I can't wait to write the summary for this conversation because I think the whole thing is, I think the title of it is going to be Capitalism and White Supremacy are BFFs. And yes. I think the whole summary is going to be this conversation challenges all of our assumptions in the most affirmative and awesome kind of way. And I am grateful as always, Amy, for the things that I have learned from you through these years. Um, I do want to point out to our listeners that the N10 NTC is coming up. There's an amazing, amazing podcast uh, through Big Duck that you should dig up uh, that talks about the journey of making NTC virtual last year and a lot of the decisions and feelings and thoughts that went into that. But Amy, anything you want to say to plug N10 and NTC before we wrap? Sure. Thanks for the plug opportunity. Um, I think we are currently like every day living the anniversary of what at that time I thought was like the hardest days of my career and now we've all experienced a lifetime of very hard days and somehow we are 
mostly still here. So um, that's real. We are very excited that the conference, you know, COVID cannot cancel it. Um, the, the venue for the conference this year cannot be a uh, field hospital because the venue is the internet this year. So there will be nothing taken away. Um, there's over 150 sessions. And for folks who haven't been part of the nonprofit technology conference before, the, the part of what makes Enten's, the Nten community, not, not us as staff, but the Nten community special is that like everybody gets to both be an expert and share something you've done or experienced and then go learn. So, you know, Tracy might be presenting one of those 150, but then the rest of the time, Tracy's learning in other sessions from other people, you know? So um, I think that is a really cool piece of the community. Um, and three keynotes this year, all super amazing and lots of opportunities for community connection and, you know, finding other people that are similar to you and, you know, unstructured conversations, all those pieces from the, the in-person NTC, we've found ways to do digitally. Um, I think there's like a NTC playlist, like Spotify that folks can listen to. There's all kinds of good stuff. Um, there's gonna be art and music sessions every day. So like you can come listen to bands, uh, it, do whatever you wanna do. You can do it at the NTC. Uh, so come, it's in March and registration because it's virtual was open all the way up until you know the conference starts. Amazing. Thank you so very much, Amy. Thanks for having me. I so appreciate both of you creating space for conversations that are bigger than any one topic. You know, I think that we need to spend some of our mental time there, you know? Um, yeah. 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 Thanks for always bringing it. I love it. Um, every time I talk with you, I'm like, wow, that, that's interesting. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, um, quote from uh, Aurora Levin's Corrales that, that talks about like, if we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna change the world, um, this is my paraphrase, uh, if we're gonna change the world and we're gonna live in this other place, we have to live and, and act in a way where we can both stand here today and have one of our feet in that other world. And I think about that quote like multiple times a day um, as both an opportunity to like recenter myself and like, which foot am I leaning on when I'm making these conversations or making these decisions or making these, you know, uh, whatever plans, um, you know, am I standing in the foot that's in this world or am I standing on the foot that's like ready to be in that other world, you know? Um, and I think that having big expansive conversations helps us like shift some of our weight onto that other foot, you know? I like Agreed. that. Yep. Our feet in both worlds. I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronzak. And you've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.